me ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 15. This summer we have been focusing upon uh, the Psalms, and especially in our worship, I hope that you have been reminded again of the depth of the Psalms and, and how it leads us more and more to, to grasp just a portion of an understanding of the nature of God and how He deals with us, but also how very real they are, uh, how they speak uh, to the heart of men and women. And uh, this psalm is very much in that line. Early in his reign, King David decided to have the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem. Now, this is not uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is, you know, this is not some magical thing. There was an Ark of the Covenant, and it was a most holy article. In the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a, a chest that was covered with gold, and uh, in fact, the Hebrew word that uh, we translate ark is uh, uh, the same word you would translate, for instance, coffin. So you can kind of get a picture of uh, it was something you could insert things into. There were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. There were two stone tablets. This was one thing uh, with the Ten Commandments. There was a pot of manna that was miraculously preserved by God as a reminder to his people and the rod of Aaron. All were inside the ark. Now the ark, whenever it was moved, uh, it was transported by uh, holding rods, poles that went through uh, some rings that were attached to the ark. The reason was because it represented God's covenant relationship with his people. And God's standard was that no one was to touch this ark unless they were ceremonially designated to do so. And so they would carry it with these poles And in the transporting of this to Jerusalem, they put it on an ox cart. Now, David saw fit to have an entourage of 30,000 people surrounding the Ark of the Covenant as it was being transported on the cart, one of the oxes stumbled. And there was a danger that the Ark of the Covenant would fall to the ground. One of the attendants reached up to keep the Ark from falling to the ground. And he did so. Seems like a logical thing to do. This is something that is holy. We cannot let it touch the ground. And certainly it was a reaction 
that he had in order to preserve it. God's reaction, shocked, stunned, and caused fear among the people. In 2 Samuel 6, it says, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, that was the attendant, because of his irreverent act. Now keep in mind, it makes sense to us, doesn't it? And yet, it was contrary to what God had said in his holiness. God's anger burned, therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. When David saw what happened, he was first angry. But that was followed by being puzzled and fear and asking the question, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can we ever have this precious mark of holiness among us? How can I live in the presence of this ark of the covenant? Perhaps it was David seeing things like that take place that illustrated God's perfect holiness his standard, and how far away man was from that standard that caused him to write under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit Psalms like 15, where he changes the question, how can I ever have the ark in front of me? To this, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And then there's the answer. He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who uh, lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we too would be struck with that question when we consider your holiness and how we can't even figure out how to deal with it like Uzzah did in that day. 
Will you, Lord, through this psalm, through your word, teach us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's David's big question. And it's a legitimate question. With these kinds of standards, how in the world can anyone ever be in your presence? How can we dwell in your sanctuary? Who in the world can live on your holy hill? And then this most devastating answer comes. And it's not even a complete answer. There's a list here. There are what we call couplets in the uh, Hebrew poetry, in the Psalms, where there are parallel statements. There will be a statement made and then another one that's similar but coming from a, a slightly different angle. And it's for emphasis. And there are six of these. The first one, in response to his question, I think is kind of an umbrella answer. And then the the others flesh out examples of that answer. Now let's take a look at these. First of all, in in verse 2, in response to who can dwell in your sanctuary? I don't get it, David is saying. Who in the world, he's saying with the implication is, I don't see how I can dwell in your presence. Having witnessed the kinds of things that I have in terms of your holiness and how other you are, how different you are from us. And so in verse 2, it says, He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. Oh, okay, all right. So all we got to do is have a blameless walk and do righteous things. So who can dwell in your presence? The question's still there, even more so. The whole idea of being blameless and then doing these righteous acts. The, The first one in the Hebrew, speaks of a, a wholeness, a consistency. In other words, this blamelessness is being the same person on Monday through Saturday as one is on Sunday when we sense we are in the presence of God. Of course, we're always before the face of God. But it's that kind of a consistency. That's the idea of being blameless. And then the idea of doing what is righteous takes it a step. It's not just uh, uh, being declared righteous like in that wonderful doctrine that we celebrate where God declares his people as being righteous, but it, it's carrying through with those actions. It's, it's uh, like Jesus spoke of, feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting the prisoner. It's those things. And yet, the question is still there. But the couplets begin to pile on. 
the next statements that flesh out this blamelessness and this righteousness just continue to seemingly pull the distance apart. It it talks about speaking the truth. Look at verse 2. It says, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue. So again, you you see the contrast between the the two parallel statements. Uh, The first one is uh, saying that which is true. Um, The Hebrew word there has to do with trustworthiness. And the second uh, part of the couplet tells us what we won't do. We won't slander. We won't gossip. I don't know if there's anything more devastating to the body of Christ than that. And and yet, here it's summarized. How, How can we avoid that? That slander, that speaking, that which is slander. Well... First of all, it'd be not talking about anyone else. You know, the idea of gossip. One church where I served, it was in a, a, a community where a lot of folks had gone to the church for many years. And I had just arrived there, was visiting, getting to know people. And I, I still remember one lady who was trying to help me out. I should have just accepted her advice. But she... Uh, she said, now, I got to tell you, Pastor Weldon, a lot of people in this church are related, so be careful who you talk about. And I couldn't just let that go, and so in my most pious way, I said, well, I make it a policy not to talk about anyone, then I don't need to worry about that. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that, but uh, she was just trying to help me. And yet, that really is what it's saying. You don't talk about people, but the other side of it is instead, you talk to people, not about them. At every point in the Scripture, that's the way followers of Christ are to work. Those who don't know the Lord don't have the same standard. Some don't do that just out of politeness or whatever, but but Jesus again and again gives us that standard. That's how we deal with conflicts or hurts with other people. In Matthew 5, he said, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... Now, what he's talking about is if, if you're going to worship. And we know how important Jesus saw worship as being. And so he said, if, you, if you're uh, offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. So there's some kind of un- unresolved conflict. Here's what he says to do. Don't continue to worship. Don't present your gift at the altar. You leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come offer your gift. That's how important it is. Now, think about what Jesus is ruling out by what he says there. He's ruling out holding a grudge. He is ruling out gossiping about others. 
he's ruling out other actions like anonymous notes or letters. That's not the way God's people are to work. That's cowardly and cruel. In fact, in the New Testament, it says those that act that way are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. This is not some just minor character flaw. It's that serious. And none of those fit with walking blamelessly and doing what is righteous. And then it goes on and he talks about treatment of others. It's very much related to that one in verse 3. Who does his neighbor no wrong. Now think about the idea of your neighbor. That's not just your next door neighbor. The Bible broadens it much beyond that. And casts no slur on his fellow man. So even in casting a slur on somebody, you're doing them wrong. Now, if you look around today, for instance, that's pretty easy to do. You know, we're, we're pretty much alike, a lot of us. And so it's, it's not that bad of a thing to have to treat each other like neighbors. What about the one you come in contact with that has AIDS because of their lifestyle choice? What about the one that has been to prison for doing something many would find repulsive? What about others that treat you badly? You see, those are the real tests because those are your neighbors too. And that's what makes it harder previous church where I served, I got a phone call one evening, and I've had a number of these through the years. This one came to my mind this week as I was thinking about this. The guy on the other end said, I, I need to talk with you. I'd, I'd like to do it in person, but I just can't face you with what I got to tell you and ask you. And I said, that's all right, let's talk. And we did. And he told me something about himself that if I were to say it out loud, you with children would want to cover your children's ears. And most of the rest of you would blush. And when he got done telling me, and he'd been coming to the church, and he wanted to know what I thought of that now that I knew that. So when he got done, there was just waiting, uh, waiting for a reply. And I said, well, and then said his name. I'm glad you're at our church. Now, on the other end of the line, there was silence. And then there was sobbing. Uncontrollable sobbing. Now, I'm not making myself the hero of this story because I knew very well 
that as Joey said earlier, this is going to be messy. And I don't like walking into messes any, any better than the next person. And I knew it was going to be hard in some ways for our church. But there's something that I knew that, that uh, put all of those in perspective, and that is the answer Jesus would have given to him. And I know what it was because we have it recorded how he dealt with those people that society looked at that way. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the cheaters, the liars, the drunkards, the gluttons. Jesus treated them as his neighbor. He was friendly to them. You might not like to hear that. He didn't endorse their actions at any point, but he respected them because he knew full well that these were people made in the image of God. And therefore, they're my neighbor. And he knew their biggest problem was not their horrible actions, but their heart that had a big hole in it needing God. It goes on. In a third area, those who can dwell in God. Talks about things one's va- one values. Uh, verse 4, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. Canadian study a few years ago said that young people don't have heroes anymore. And I was thinking about that uh, recently. I was at a local restaurant, Applebee's, and I was looking around. There's pictures all over the wall of at least the actor heroes, you know, the old ones, Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers and, uh, you know, uh, John Wayne, all the ones with the white hats. And it says, you know, they, they don't really have heroes And some, because of that, have reached uh, a point where they don't have good direction. But you know what? They do have role models. For some of them, it's, it's athletes that seem to have all the money in the world and no accountability, or the actors, not the characters, but the actors who seem to be able to do whatever they want. One social critic said, we've reached the point where people would rather be envied than admired. Not so with the righteous. This says, these are the kind of people, those who fear God, these are the ones that you honor. And then it talks about a consistent integrity. This is getting harder, isn't it? You see these couplets, how they seem to just pile on when you're, you're saying, well, you know, I, I, I thought I knew God, but wow, I'm, I'm violating like all of these, consistent integrity, one who keeps his oath, even when it hurts. Yesterday, I did a wedding here. This young couple took vows. 
you know what, it was probably pretty easy today for them to keep their vows. Today. It gets harder though, doesn't it? What do you do if your boss tells you to lie? You know, in our day and age, I've got to provide for my family. I might lose my job or I, I might lose a promotion or a raise. What do I do? What do you do if you're putting an addition on your home and the builder says, you know what? In our county, you're supposed to get a permit. In fact, it's the law. But a lot of people don't do it. And I wouldn't really recommend it because it's a lot of hassle and it it usually ends up costing you more money. What do you do? That happened to us over in Georgia. A, A builder who seemed to know the Lord, but that was just a regular part of his business like a lot of other builders. I said, well, let's get a permit. Guess what happened? It was a big hassle and it cost us a lot of money. See, I'd love to stand here and say, well, God bless because I made the right decision and it cost us less money and there was no hassle whatsoever, so make the right decision. But it doesn't work that way. That's why David says... It's, it's about keeping one's oath even when it hurts, even when it's hard. Now, here's the thing. You've got to make the decision not in the middle of the test, but you make it like here, today, and say, this is what the people of God do. And so the next time I'm confronted, I don't have to make the decision. The pressure's off. This is what the people of God do. And then the the last of the couplets talks about not being captive to money. Who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. The concern here is not so much accepting interest as it is taking uh, advantage of others. The wealthy person taking advantage of the poor. We can't be captive to that. Now, then it goes on with the results. Verse 5. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now, Jesus in the New Testament gave a a parable where he basically paralleled this. He put it this way. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice as like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. It's a shakable one. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So back to David's question. 
Who can dwell in your sanctuary? Okay, well, the answer you gave me is these six things. But that's not even a complete list. And if you're honest in your heart of hearts, as you heard this list of things, you said, like I had to say in my heart this week in preparing this, I can't keep those. If it depends upon my strength, then I'm not going to be able to dwell in his sanctuary. I told you a couple little stories. I could tell you dozens where I have failed in those. If you came to that conclusion that you can't do it, I would simply say, you're exactly right. You can't. Because there is only one who has ever fulfilled this. This is a partial description of Jesus Christ who alone fulfills all of those. And so that's what drives us to that answer. You see, if we try to do it in our own strength, at best we'll get frustrated because we will keep failing. At worst, we will burn out and just give up and quit trying. And so, who can stand in his sanctuary? Only Jesus Christ and those in whom he dwells by faith. If you are trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life, then that is the answer. It's with him that we can dwell in his sanctuary and live on his holy hill. Let's bow together.